Coming up on Tech Nation, UC San Francisco professor Dr. Louise Aronson talks about a new stage of life, elderhood. With modern technology, it lasts longer than anyone imagined, requires more science to study the effects of medications on this population and the orientation to independence and quality of life. Then, Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Daniel Kraft talks about the Internet of Medical Things, while a periomics, Dr. Crystal Eisenhower, talks about identifying hard-to-diagnose medical conditions while looking at the DNA of microorganisms living in your body. All this coming up on this week's Tech Nation. Let's take five with Moira Gunn. This is Five Minutes. In a 2013 Tech Nation interview, I asked Jaron Lanier about something he wrote in his book, Who Owns the Future? It was, the clamor for online attention only turns into money for a token minority of ordinary people. But there is another tiny class of people who always benefit. I asked him, who are they? Ah, well, the people who always benefit are the people who have gotten close to the most effective, biggest, and best computers in a network. This is something I started to notice around the turn of the century. I'd, I'd been waiting with tremendous anticipation for the wave of well-being and prosperity that digital networking would create in the world. And what I saw happening instead was a lot of people I knew not doing so well, a lot of governments going into austerity with the Great Recession, loss of social mobility jobless recoveries, hollowed out job markets. And what I noticed was this um, intense concentration of wealth and power, that, you know, which is sometimes called the 1% by the Occupy movement sorts of people. And all those people, all the new occupants anyway, seemed to be close to some big computer or another. They were either close to one of the big financial computers running high-frequency trades or weird leveraged derivatives in a hedge fund or something, or they were next to one of the big Silicon Valley computers like a search or social network or a giant online store or something like that, or they were next to a giant insurance company computer or a giant credit company computer. Think about Kodak versus think about Instagram where you just you know take your picture and click it's on the it's on your Facebook site. It's anywhere you want it to be. You send it there. So compare those two companies. Well, look. First of all, I don't have anything against Instagram, and I don't have anything against tremendous success. I'm a Silicon Valley guy. Uh, I've helped start startups that have become parts of Google and Adobe and other companies. So I'm I'm very pro success. The problem I have with what we're doing is we're creating a kind of success that's shrinking the economy in which our success makes sense. So if you look at Kodak, it directly employed hundreds of thousands of people at good middle class levels with security benefits and all. Instagram employed 13 people, period, when it sold for a billion dollars. What we've been asking to do with the idea of free information is ask people to revert to the informal economy idea, where there's a kind of value. You can get benefits from the way we're treating information is free. You can get reputation, you can get some ego stroking, you can get noticed, you can get occasional gigs and promote yourself for them, but you get very little formal value. Now, the interesting thing about formal value, especially for middle class people, is that 
it didn't just come about by decree from the fates or something. It was actually <laughs> a hard-won you know, a triumph of the labor movement. We were talking about Kodak and Instagram. If you go to Rochester, New York, where both uh, Kodak and Polaroid were based, before that, there had been an empire of buggy whip <laughs> manufacturers. And the interesting thing about buggy whips is that, of course, that industry was made obsolete because uh, motor cars and trucks took over from horse-driven vehicles. But at the same time, the people who drove those new motorized vehicles uh, had to fight to be recognized as actually doing work. The labor movement sort of settled the question of whether the value delivered by somebody who is taking much less risk and much accepting much less hassle and living in much greater comfort in a motor vehicle could still be treated as doing real work that was worth being paid for. And, you know, what happened around the turn of the century with Silicon Valley and with the finance industry is we decided, hey, it's nice for us to benefit from getting information from free for free. We have the biggest computers, and if we don't have to pay for the information, then we can leverage them to compute our way to success. And what that really means is that the, the form of participation that's required for the new technologies that are so information-centric, that kind of participation is no longer treated as real work. You may know Jaron Lanier from his other books, including You Are Not a Gadget and The Future of Everything. I was able to speak with Jaron Lanier about who owns the future on TechNation in 2013. I'm Moira Gunn. This is 5 Minutes. Five Minutes is produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Five Minutes is a production of Tech Nation Media. I'm Paul Lancor. From San Francisco, I'm Moira Gunn, and this is Tech Nation. Today on Tech Nation, Dr. Louise Aronson, a professor of medicine at UC San Francisco. She talks about aging, which today lasts a very, very long time. And chief correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft tells us about the Internet of Medical Things, while a periomics Dr. Crystal Eisenhower gives us hope that we can diagnose the previously undiagnosable, all by looking at the DNA of microorganisms in our bodies. And now, Louise Aronson. Louise, welcome to Tech Nation. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I was immediately taken by the very first quote in your book. Old age will only be respected if it fights for itself, maintains its rights, and asserts control over its own to its last breath. Who wrote that and when? So that was written thousands of years ago by Cicero, which just goes to show that some things about old age haven't changed one bit. Uh, particularly many people's attitudes, but that also that Cicero was onto something that the baby boomers are going to take up in unprecedented ways. 75 million of them, 75 to 55 now, marching right into elderhood. At what age do you become an elder? 
Ah, well, that's a good question. It shocks most people to find that um, similarly from the days of Cicero or actually from about three, 4,000 years before that and across all cultures and parts of the planet, old age has been defined as starting somewhere between the ages of 60 and 70. Now, some people will retort, well, surely it's not like that these days. But if you line up people of different ages and have people of all ages look at them, they will always identify people somewhere in that range as old, even if they themselves are older than that and do not self-identify as old. Well, it doesn't apply to any anybody. Well, it right. doesn't apply to me. It seems to rarely <laughs> apply in the mirror, but applies, you know, in widespread fashion outside. And that's because we've associated the word old with only bad things. Whereas, in fact, elderhood is a period of life that is much longer than childhood, has at least as much variability, lasts decades and, in fact, generations now. We have children and parents both in elderhood. Uh, so to reduce it to one small part does everybody a disservice, both the people in that small part that we denigrate and everyone else. Now, elder is one perception. Old is another. And you talk about an exercise that Professor Guy is at MICO at UC Berkeley. Let's talk about that. Elder, old. Yeah. So he told me about this and and, um, I had wanted to see it for myself. But basically, he would start with his new medical students. So people at the first of their 10, 12 years of training And he says, he gives them scratch paper and he says, I'm going to write a word on the board. You have one minute. Just just put your, don't filter, just write what you think of. And the first word he writes is old and they scribble. And then when a minute's up, he puts elder down. And they kind of look like, oh, you know, you're messing with us. (laughs) Um, And then they write for another minute. And for old, they write things like weak, feeble, sad, wrinkled, gray-haired, pretty much nothing very positive. Um, Occasionally, somebody will put wisdom. But for elder, it looks very different. It's wisdom, power, knowledge, responsibility, respect. It's all good. Now, if you look in the dictionary about those two words and you just take their definitions as applied to human beings, they are identical. And all they mean is a person who has lived more years, right? So there is no negativity inherent to that word. That is something we put on the word. And in some ways, that's good news, because if we put it there, we can take it away. It was not until 1993 that Congress passed a federal law that said women and minorities must be included in all clinical research. Uh, Before that, we only did clinical trials on a new drug on men and then made sort of these imaginative leaps to apply it to women once approved. Uh, Now, if it was excluded, now it must be there must be an express rationale for excluding them. Cost was not acceptable. And finally, the clinical trials that were conducted must be designed and carried out in such a way that determines if the effect of treatments on men and minorities was in fact the same or different from men. You have been a a geriatrician in geriatrics here for over two decades. Do you prescribe treatments differently for the elderly as opposed to for men and women in the adult range? Absolutely. I mean, you have to. 
Uh, but there's no testing for it. There's but there's no, no testing. Well, so actually, there is a requirement as of late January of this year. I missed it. Yes. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I have an article in Stat News about it if you want to uh, read about it. But basically, it's called inclusion across the lifespan, and um, they, they have had a stipulation about children for some time. But as with women and minorities, there still aren't as many children um, in trials re- relevant to children um, as there could be. And there was never until 2019 any stipulation that you had to include older people. Now, this include testing of drugs for diseases that, that occur almost exclusively in older people. And yet, and certainly for all the ones that are both for adults and elders, and generally people would be excluded, the vast majority of older people would be excluded in one of two ways. One would be a, an age cutoff, just straight up people under age 70 or people under age 65. Um, The other was that they would say, well, we're going to exclude people who have heart disease or diabetes or dementia or a variety of other things that are increasingly common as we age. And with those two stipulations, they would basically not test on old people. Why? For the same reasons they weren't testing initially on women and minorities and children, because they're different. But actually, if you lump together children, old people, women, and minorities, you have the vast majority of human beings on this planet. Everybody. Well, not, you know, there are a few people in another category. And I'm not saying, you know, we want to now understudy, you know, white men, but we need to study all of us. You know, they're not the standard to which we are all exceptions. Um, There are a variety of standards and categories of human being. And we only know if drugs work in those human beings if we test it in them. Um, And I don't want to go on and on, but there was an example just this week in the literature of a drug that has been used for some time on hundreds of thousands of people. And they finally studied in people over age 65, and they found the rates of hospitalization and gut ischemia, essentially a heart attack that happens to your intestines, um, were so high that they're probably going to pull the drug from the market. And at the very least, you won't be able to give it to people over age 65. But because they never studied them initially, they've been getting it for decades and harms have been done, harms that were probably attributed to the person being old and not to the drug that had never been studied in older bodies. Even if you include elders, primarily clinical trials primarily study the new drug that they're trying to make sure works, or they study the new drug as an add-on, if you will, to existing drugs that will make that drug more effective potentially. Most people, as they age, start picking up new prescriptions. I know of no way to really test all of these cross interactions. This is very serious. It's very serious. Um, a huge part of what we do in geriatrics is consider what's called polypharmacy, where a person has a large number of prescriptions. And by large, you know, people have 15 or 20 or more drugs they're taking each day. But it's interesting because it does, it takes far fewer than that to start causing interactions. Actually, it takes two. Um, to tango we, here. To, it, yeah, it only takes two to tango. And the more you add, the more dangerous it is. Um, also, uh, liver function and kidney function, the two organs that primarily clear drugs from our system, changes with age. So that even a person who's been taking the same drug for years can suddenly have a problem with it, even though they were fine on it previously. Um, a, another interesting fact is that 
people who are taking more than four medications, regardless of what those are, and that includes vitamins, are at increased risk for falls. And we know falls lead to hospitalization, (laughs) fractures, uh, you know, institutionalization and death. So these drugs are doing things in older bodies that we don't think about. So we think very seriously about polypharmacy. We do something that most people may not have heard of called de-prescribing, which is to get rid of drugs, particularly those with no proven usefulness in people, particularly at the older ages of elderhood. We are here in San Francisco, which is located in California. We are the home of supplements. We love our supplements. We do. A little additional vitamin D for you. And, of course, you get your your profile over here. And, of course, we know this particular one's over here. And this one's going to clear this. And this is good for your gut. You can go through a long list before you even hit what's been prescribed for you. How do we figure out how to put these great supplements in with prescription medications in the sense that they could create a fall? What, what do we think is going on there? Or do we even know? We don't really know what happens. I mean, maybe the taking of four or more drugs signals that a person is unwell and that's why they are taking it. So it's that. It's it's a It could be an association as opposed to causal. It might also be that multiple things interact with a physiology in the way that makes people more inclined to fall. So, I mean, the, the short, honest answer is we don't really we don't know. know. <laughs> but as we like to say in medicine, we see this. Well, science. <laughs> Science is first to observe, and then you figure out why. But we have observed. And yes. so more cautionary tales. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Louise Aronson, a professor of medicine at UC San Francisco. She directs the Medical Humanities Program. A graduate of Harvard Medical School, she's also earned a master's in fine arts in writing and has published fictional stories, as in the stories of human experience with modern medicine, found in 2014's A History of the Present Illness. And the stories that bring us here today with elderhood, redefining aging, transforming medicine, reimagining life. Well, in this book, you're not just talking about medicine and science, which figures you were not a pre-med major as an undergraduate. You studied, let me see here, you studied you studied history and medical anthropology. I don't even know what medical anthropology <laughs> is. So could you enlighten us? I could. Well, actually, at, at the time, it was an independent major, but it's actually a wonderful field. So it is anthropology as applied to health disease and health systems and health practices. Uh, and like much of anthropology, it initially began looking at uh, cultures other than the culture from which the anthropologist originated, right? I mean, there used to to be a language for this, such as primitive cultures, but I'm very clearly steering away from that. Um, In the modern era, medical anthropology has shed light on the traditions, customs, and culture of medicine and healthcare in ways that are so informative and that really don't come out if you simply rely on those of us in the field to uh, try and have perspective on our own work and culture. And we also are looking here at stories. Now, we're not talking about this is about medicine and here are all the references, although you have a lot of references and notes at the end. Uh, But this is also about humans. What's the difference between a journalistic or an academic uh, treatise on, on geriatrics, as an example, and telling stories? Uh, Well, everybody likes a story. 
And not everybody likes to read an academic treatise, even if the topic interests them, right? So in an academic work, you will have a lot of jargon. Sometimes you're trying to make your way through the thicket of words to get to the meaning. It's not necessarily fun to read. Uh, Whereas when you're telling a story, you've got mystery. You've got characters people care about. You may also have some really important ideas, uh, but it's kind of what the uh, writer and prize winner Isaac Bashevis Singer said of literature generally, which is that its primary job is to entertain and its secondary job is to educate. So what I sought to do was to write a book that was very entertaining, even while it informed people about patients' lives, my life, history of aging, the science of aging, the, you know, aging in literature and aging in pop culture. I thought I would pull all that together so that it's both entertaining and really uh, stimulates how you think and feel about elderhood. And while you may name names, they're often not the name, (laughs) maybe meshing stories, uh, you may be moving places or taking a small part of a larger story. But what you do read about is true. Oh, absolutely. It's all true. So I haven't actually meshed any stories. What I have done is made changes in um, personal characteristics to protect the privacy of patients, because that is really paramount. Um, where I could ask, there there is one person who is named, um, who basically became my friend um, into her 90s, and her son and I are still in touch, so I got his permission. But the other names are names I changed because I felt like I didn't um, well, often I can't, if it's a story from long ago about a very old person, they are no longer around to give their permission. You're listening to Tech Nation. I'm Moira Gunn, and my guest today is Dr. Louise Aronson, a professor of medicine at UC San Francisco. She directs the Medical Humanities Program. A graduate of Harvard Medical School, she's also earned a master's in fine arts in writing and has published fictional stories, as in the stories of human experience with modern medicine, found in 2014. A History of the Present Illness, and the stories that bring us here today with elderhood, redefining aging, transforming medicine, reimagining life. Now, I'm sure people are asking you a lot, and I will as well, about what are the new technologies that are going to make a difference? I was impressed by some of the technologies that are comparatively primitive, very simple, like the pocket talker. Tell that story for everyone. (laughs) That was a great story. So um, these days, the people who take care of patients in hospitals are called hospitalists. Um, And so I had a a 100, 101-year-old patient that I was seeing um, in my outpatient practice just go into the hospital with a blood blood clot. And when it was time for his discharge, the hospitalist called me. And he'd only been in a couple of days and said, well, I don't know. We're trying to decide, should he go to skilled nursing or could he go home? And so I responded, well, what would he like to do? And there was this awkward pause. And then he said, well, he has dementia. And then there was a second pause after which I said, But he doesn't have dementia. Is he delirious, which is an acute confusional state that can happen to older people and younger people in the hospital? And he said, well, no. And then there was another pause. And then it occurred to me what the problem was. I said, is he wearing his hearing aids? And it turned out, I mean, this guy, like, no cognitive impairment. And what he realized was he had spent a lot of money on his hearing aids. Hearing aids are really costly and generally not covered by insurance. And he felt sure the hospital would lose them. So he left them at home. And the hospital staff had not – it had not occurred to them. Like most people who live to age 100, their ears – 
don't work so well. But it hadn't occurred to them. And he was trying to read their lips but having trouble. So he wasn't always answering appropriately. So I said to the hospitalist, why don't you get a pocket talker? And again, there was a silence. He's like, what's a pocket talker? And I said, well, the nurses will know because nurses are much better at communication generally. Um, And what it is is basically earphones you put over the ear of the person who has some hearing impairment and a mic that the other people speak into. And it's not like a hearing aid exactly, but it does amplify. So they put the pocket talker on the patient and he decided to go home where he did fine. Uh, So, you know, that raises a bunch of stories about really simple technologies that can be transformative and also about the ways people often assume dementia in people over age 80 in particular, even when it's not there and there are other things going on. The next stop is dementia. Mm -hmm. And, And the majority of older people do not have dementia. Many, many do but not everyone. And then there are these amazing new technologies, new treatments, new medical devices, new possible surgeries, you name it. In what ways are the new and emergent technologies a friend to the elderly? And in what ways are they not? Ah, well, they are both very decidedly. So there are wonderful things. People who would have had to give up even basic things like walking and maybe leave their homes or be in constant agony can get new joints in procedures that are not, you know, without any discomfort or strain, but are pretty quickly transformative. So that is an absolutely wonderful thing. Um, We also have eye surgeries like cataract surgery. You would have gone blind and actually still if um, for... Uh, people, African-American listeners, get your screening sooner because African-Americans are still too likely to get to become blind based just on cataracts. Um, so things like that that are pretty basic are are really huge. There are also equipment. So in geriatrics, we like to talk about um, how the key to being able to function and lead a meaningful life is both the person and the environment. And then also on on a third thing, the relationship between the two. So sometimes you can change the home environment even when the person can't be changed and make it possible for them to stay there. So chairlifts. But, you know, a hospital will pay for you um, after you've fallen down the stairs. They will pay for an ambulance to take you to the emergency department. Uh, They will pay for emergency care. They will pay for specialists. They will pay for preoperative evaluation, for the anesthesia, for the surgery after your fracture, for your hospital stay after, and for you to go to skilled nursing, all of which will cost tens and sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars. But they will not pay the $3,000 to put the chairlift in your home so that you can continue to stay there safely and get up and down. So this is a huge problem with the medical system, but I digress slightly. Sorry. So we can also do really um, great things. And and there was a recent article about even iPhones being transformative. And as they've been made bigger, you know, they kept thinking we're going to make different technology for older people. Um, But in fact, the same technologies, maybe with some adjustments for size, are fabulous. So there are so many ways. um, And I guess the other big thing would be on caregivers. So caregiving can be very physically taxing. um, And often caregivers are not themselves so young. So people are working on things like robots who might do some of the heavy lifting. So the truly intimate care, the interpersonal stuff can be left to human beings and the caregiver isn't put at such risk. Um, On the flip side, there are a lot of startups these days and a lot of conferences about aging where they're really focused on aging as a way of making money. And I'm not saying it's not good to make money, but if you're only thinking about the money, you miss out on some important things. Um, It's also often done by people who are quite young and think that you can't actually talk to old people. 
So sometimes they will approach us as geriatricians to tell them about old people because they really think that you just can't talk to an old person, that, that old people's brains don't work, that you, they couldn't have meaningful conversations. So they are often imagining what the old person would want rather than actually asking what the old people want. Um, the, the second thing that happens that's really a shame is that they're often catering to the concerned adult children and not to the old people themselves. Adult children tend to care primarily about safety. Old people themselves tend to care primarily about independence and quality of life. And until we start having those conversations in an honest, open way, we have invasion of privacy of people um, who are not in any way compromised and don't deserve to be treated, you know, as if Big Brother is always watching and their priorities don't matter. I've been speaking with Dr. Louise Aronson, the author of Elderhood, Redefining Aging, Transforming Medicine, Reimagining Life. We'll talk more after a break. Podcasts of Tech Nation are available at NPR One, iTunes, Stitcher, and other podcast syndication outlets. Coming up in the second half of our show, Daniel Kraft talks about the Internet of Medical Things. And yes, they are even in your underwear. And Dr. Crystal Eisenhower talks about diagnosing tricky medical conditions by looking at the DNA of microorganisms living in our bodies. Stay with us. listening to Tech Nation, I've been speaking with Dr. Louise Aronson. Her book is Elderhood, Redefining Aging, Transforming Medicine, Reimagining Life. At the end of the day, at the end of life, if you should be so lucky to have choices, that's great. One issue everyone has is who will make medical decisions for you about your treatments and perhaps even your death. No matter what, these people are human, and you can't predict how this human will act and make choices. What do we know or sense, or what's been your experience here? 
Well, my experience, and, and this is reflected by abundant data, you know, everywhere, is that most people don't want to think about becoming ill or disabled or being close to death. And there's almost a superstitious, I mean, it's very human, right? So I, I don't want to say this as a criticism because it really crosses, you know, all lines of economics and race and culture, you know, with some variability. Um, so people somehow think that if they address those things, they're more likely to happen. There's exactly no evidence that that's true. In fact, there's abundant evidence that the reverse is true. To the greatest extent that you can imagine, and for most of us, most people don't die suddenly, and luckily most people don't die young, which means that at some point all of us will will need these advanced directives. The best way to retain control over your own life and well-being is to very clearly articulate your priorities and goals to someone you can trust to think about what you would do if you could speak for yourself and not what they would do for you. And the more you put that down and speak to your doctor or nurse practitioner or family members or friends um, and then write it down or at least pick a delegate who will act on your best interests, the greater your chances of having those best interests respected and having the advanced old age and death you want. Now, for over two decades now, you've been a geriatrician. And uh, you, of course, have been getting older during this period. Um, Strangely. Strangely, you noticed. (laughs) Quite to my surprise. (laughs) Yeah. How, How does your experience, you know, inform you about you yourself? getting older. Yes. Well, I think like most people, I really thought it was something that happened to other people that I was working with this, you know, population. Um, And that that somehow, even though intellectually I knew it would apply to me one day, it was unimaginable, really. Um, And uh, I, it was as if I thought I would be 35 until one day I was 70. Uh, And as I entered my 50s, um, a few things happened. The year we were 50, we had three friends who died. Um, three friends and acquaintances, basically. And and that's in keeping with curves. You know, it's still low, but people begin to die in their 50s, and it goes up more in the 60s, and then it goes up fairly significantly thereafter. And it makes you realize, like, oh, hey, this could be me too, and I've lived more of my life than is probably coming. And that should really inform my priorities, which was actually a lovely realization. I have done such a better job of saying no to things that matter less to me and saying yes to things that matter more. And it has increased my happiness and life satisfaction, you know, like infinitely, really. Um, But I also noticed the changes in my body. And like many people, I started making those comments one makes, particularly, you know, I teach in our medical school, so I'm around a lot of 20-year-olds. And I started making these comments. And then I realized I was reinforcing the negative when, in fact, I am happier than I've been ever, I would say, and less stressed. And that is what we find in world polls of people except in the poorest countries. So now every time I make one of those comments about the bodily disappointments, and I'm not going to say they aren't real, and obviously I'm at the beginning of this process. So if somebody's 85 and listening and thinking, oh, she doesn't even know. She has like no idea. I just coming. want to acknowledge that. Yes, it, it's absolutely real and true. Um And at the same time, most 85-year-olds are happier than most 45-year-olds. So we need to acknowledge that we change and mature in ways that 
really emphasize what matters most. Uh, actually, Judith Graham had an article yesterday in Kaiser Health News about how old people rate their health. And most people rate it as good, very good, or excellent. And on her Facebook page, the first comments were like, those people are in denial. But these are massive studies. And what happens is people really adjust their expectations and to to have priorities, to live full lives, and they feel very happy about that. They don't expect their body at 75 to be what it was at 35 or at 95 to be what it was at 55. And consequently, they're fairly pleased by all they can do. I think an important part of this as well is reframing what's possible today in this modern world. You wrote in your book about you had a grandmother who was single and she was a widow, so she was sort of to stay home and take care of her grandchildren on occasion. And there was a very prescribed life for how she should live, whereas you had a grandfather who had lost his partner. And and in fact, he was driving all over town and having quite the time of it. And that was perfectly acceptable. It's breaking away from those frameworks that are what is your life supposed to be about at any of these ages that I think is one of the bigger challenges, not just, well, am I alive today and how many eggs do I have and am I okay? It's bigger than that. Absolutely. I had a patient in my office um, just a few weeks ago was talking about his parents at his age, he's now in his late 60s, just kind of saying, well, that's it, you know, and his mother was in the kitchen and his father was on the couch and he just said, I just don't feel that way. And, and I, you know, there's nothing wrong with that and you don't need to. We used to have these prescriptive notions. I mean, it's sort of like the, the hullabaloo about Madonna. Um, you know, do you have to behave in a certain way at a certain age? Uh, you know, and you can think many things about that. I'm not sure I want to get completely into it. But we are as more and more people live into old age and as old age lasts longer and really the whole what's called the longevity dividend so the decades of life that were added to the human lifespan across the 20th century those mostly play out in elderhood so we are the first group of humans to figure out what this means and that's why this is a time of tremendous opportunity we have all this technology and science that's going to help us age better and really the limits for what we can do are our creativity and some of our antiquated policies. Well, while I was reading your book and listening to you now, uh, that old Bob Dylan line kept running through my head about, and I'm paraphrasing here, you know, if you're not busy being born, you're busy dying. And so it's like, get busy being born, stay busy. <laughs> right, stay busy living. I mean, that's what we talk about in geriatrics. Somebody at, at a reading last night, somebody said, um, well, people tend to think of that as what, what you do right before you die. And that's not, you know, geriatrics, the term was coined in 1909 to be an analog of pediatrics, right? So people often ask, what's gerontology versus geriatrics? Well, a geriatrician is the physician who focuses on old age, and a gerontologist is the, the master's or PhD trained person who studies old age. So geriatricians focus on old age. Old age lasts decades. So we're really about how you live in your old age. And are we qualified to help you die as well? We are, because luckily most of us will die old. But more of it is about how you live in the years and decades leading up to your death. Louise, such a pleasure. Don't be a stranger. Please come back. See us again. Oh, I'd love to. This was really a lot of fun. Thank you. My guest today is Dr. Louise Aronson. Her book is Elderhood, Redefining Aging, Transforming Medicine, Reimagining Life. It's published by Bloomsbury. I'm Moira Gunn. You're listening to Tech Nation.
Technation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft doesn't stop with the Internet of Things. He sees the Internet of Medical Things. Exactly. With the growth of Internet of Things, we're going to see about 50 billion individual connected devices in the world You know, by next year. That's a By next number. year. By 2020. And a lot of those can be measuring and impacting our health from our connected home, you know, how you're managing your thermostat. <laughs> Let's say you keep uh, turning it up at night, maybe you have a, th- a thyroid issue, uh, all the way to your connected bed that can track your sleep. But where this gets really interesting is, again, this internet of medical things, even the internet of the body, the fact that these devices can become connected, uh, you know, sort of the API of the body means we can start to measure everything from elements on our Apple Watch to our connected home, to connect that data back to our genomics, or even the clinical setting, connect all these disparate devices to share their data and make a much more uh, collaborative, seamless healthcare platform. And within that, you were talking about an API for the body. What's API? An API stands for... Application Programming Interface. That was a quiz. You got it right. (laughs) API. (laughs) There's even companies called Human API now that are starting to connect all our gizmos, right? Might be your Apple Watch or your Fitbit or a connected ring. Or your... Or your pacemaker. Exactly. That's where all, all these devices are now most valuable when the data can flow, hopefully in a privacy-maintained manner, and eventually back to your, let's say, your caregiver, your, your healthcare system, your doctor, to do a better job of optimizing your health and wellness and health span, picking up disease early, as we've seen published this year. Your Apple Watch now can pick up signs of atrial fibrillation, all the way to managing therapy. A diabetic patient can have a connected glucometer an insulin pump, and the data from those can not only help optimize the dose of insulin for that patient, but share that to the whole crowd of diabetics to optimize how we learn to program these uh, uh, diabetes software platforms. My favorite set of examples now is how we're changing the game with these sort of wearables and what often more sort of single gadgets that were on the um, consumer space. Um, there's a San Francisco-based company called Spire that makes a little device that was made initially to help you stay calm. It would not only track your steps, but your respiratory rate and your motion. And could say, hey, Daniel, you're not breathing much. You know, chill out. Take some deep breaths. So now we have a, a technology that started the consumer space that can measure respiratory rate, steps, heart rate. But now in the United States, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, also known as CMS, has approved these new reimbursement codes for chronic care remote patient monitoring. And that's a game changer because now we're aligning the incentives, for example, for a doctor, it might be a pulmonary doctor, to literally prescribe and get paid for uh, a little underwearable. And what's interesting is these little devices that measure your respiratory status can look at changes in your respiratory status. So if someone is having a flare of their bronchitis or emphysema, these devices can pick that up and ideally give an early warning back to the pulmonary doctor or primary care doctor or nurse, and these are starting to get paid for. So it started as a consumer device for helping you chill out and get your steps in and relax and take some deep breaths is now becoming medicalized and paid for for remote patient monitoring. And that's an example of the sea change now of simple, low-cost technologies, quite complex technologies. You can shrink a lot of exponential technology onto a disposable that fits in your underwear band and can play an important role in managing something as common as, as lung disease. Talk about the government getting into your underwear. <laughs> <laughs> there's all sorts of funds we could go down. But, you know, there's privacy issues here, right? In this internet of medical things, you can tell a lot about someone's mental health. How much are they moving and they're texting? That could be super useful to pick up someone who's becoming depressed or becoming manic. Uh, the cameras in our homes, cameras are getting very inexpensive. And now with 
pretty simple, ubiquitous software. They can pick up that there's someone moving in the room. Now they can tell, is that patient upright? How are they dressed? Are they drinking? So we think about aging in place. There's a lot of opportunity now to measure folks without having to have nurses or family members visit them. So there's a whole spread of this healthcare internet of things crossing, you know, the the aging in place home, all the way to the intensive care unit where the data can flow more seamlessly, be made sense of, and move from, you know, massive amounts of data to useful, actionable information and close that gap between data and knowledge and enable us to share that out and learn across the healthcare system. So if you're a gadget, a widget, a little chip, a little anything, you can be connected to everything. The Internet of Things is connecting everything, and that is everything from our mental health to helping track cancer patients to giving us what I like to call that check engine light for the body. Because, you know, think about our modern cars. <laughs> modern cars have 400... It's, look in your underwear. It's probably there. Well, the example of everyone knows the check engine light in your car. It's based on probably several hundred sensors now with software and AI that, you know, programs a Tesla differently than a VW bug and gives you a check engine light that gives you the opportunity to proactively go to your mechanic where they often plug in the computer and diagnose your piston number four has, you know, low pressurization. That same kind of element is going to come and be more personalized to you. Uh, the NIH is doing a baseline trial, uh, sorry, the Google Health or Verily is doing the baseline trial. The National Institutes of Health is doing the All of Us trial to both collect our genomic and medical record information, but also now our digital health exhaust, which I like to call the digitome, uh, is a, a way to start making sense of this data because we've never had it. 10 years ago was when, in 2009, was when the first Fitbit came out. Now we have an explosion of wearables, underwearables, insidables, everything from elements that can fit in our hearing aids to pills we can swallow to track the health of our gut. Now the trick is to put that together, understand that in context, and use that to optimize prevention, diagnostics, and therapy. And also we have the human element. If you want the benefit, you got to give up some of the privacy. Mm -hmm. It's going to be an exchange, and you got to decide. And uh, and I think we're this is a path we're going to have to revisit again and again. Not everybody wants to sign up for this right away, even the most technological among us. Mm -hmm. And some can even opt in. There's some platforms now where you can theoretically get paid in, let's say, Bitcoin, if you're sharing your digital health exhaust or your genomic information. Several companies, one called Dante Labs out of Boston, will almost give you a free genome if you sign off to say that that genome could be shared with the research community. And yes, we all now benefit from crowdsourced information from, from our weather to our driving maps. And I think if we're smart about how we share that, parse it, and opt in or opt out, um, we can improve healthcare for all of us. I also think of genomic health, which does a number of analytic tests in the cancer field based on the kinds of tumors that happened in the past. And when you have one of those analyses, uh, you can opt in to have your your data, your genome, and the information about it added to the great bulk of data that they can use to help diagnose in the future. So you can it, you can decide if if you really want this to help other people as well and still while still protecting your privacy. And and most of us recognize that that's how healthcare has progressed. I trained in pediatric oncology, cancer care. It was in children with leukemia that we really learned to move the needle by enrolling every child on studies. Uh, almost globally, to the point where now, you know, what used to be a death sentence for most children with standard leukemia, now 90% survive. That's now transmitted to the adult cancer world. The same thing can start to happen with our 
Internet of Things data, our genomic information, the idea that we can all become data donors, uh, I think is, is a really important part of the future. One example that's starting to become realized at Stanford, they have a, a new platform being prototyped called the Green Button Platform, where a, a, a doctor, for example, has a patient with a, maybe it's a rare condition, and there's no study comparing therapy A to therapy B. Now, that physician can do a sort of a digital consult and look at all the medical records of folks who've provided access to what worked for patients like my patient, patients like mine, and I give a suggestion of what might be the best guided path. Imagine when we connect the whole world's medical record data or entire healthcare systems that we can have a green button, not just at Stanford, but anywhere to give us better guidance for diagnosis and therapy. It's a, a brave new world, lots of challenges, ethically and privacy uh, realm, but if we're smart about it, I think we can again, move the needle in health and medicine to bring us better health care for all of us. Brave new world, Daniel. See you there. See ya. Tech Nation Health Chief Correspondent Dr. Daniel Kraft is the founder and chair of Exponential Medicine. The Exponential Medicine Conference 2019 is scheduled for early November at the Hotel Coronado in San Diego. More information is available at exponentialmedicine.com. Ever felt ill, but the doctor couldn't figure out what was wrong with you? Or have you undergone a series of treatments and nothing changed? Dr. Crystal Eisenhower is the CEO of Aperiomics. That's a very common occurrence. There are millions upon millions of people living with chronic infection, and they're being told things like, there's nothing wrong with you. They're being told they have a psychological issue. They're being told they have an autoimmune condition. And the reality is we are beginning to learn that none of those things are actually correct. There is a um, huge body of, of new evidence coming forward from the medical community that microorganisms are impacting the human body in ways we didn't ever realize before. So examples, there are some new studies showing that Alzheimer's in some cases can be linked to microorganisms in the brain. There are some studies linking things like cardiovascular disease and diabetes to the microorganisms in our intestinal tracts. And we have a lot of um, done a lot of work with autoimmune conditions such as interstitial cystitis, showing that these are actually infections. We just didn't have the right tools to be able to identify what microorganisms were causing the issues, not what was causing the symptoms. So a periomics exists to reveal the underlying issues, reveal the information that's, that's there so the healthcare providers can figure out a better course of action rather than telling somebody they're not sick because the urine culture is negative. Let's get to the bottom of what's really causing these symptoms and help improve the human condition. So let's say I'm at sort of the I'm at my wits end. They've diagnosed five different things. They put me on this, that, and the other thing. They, you, you're getting the to the point where they're saying, they're not saying exactly it's all in your head, but it's like you again. <laughs> Try this, right. and uh, what would I do to get some kind of an analysis from a periomics? We provide patients with information that they can take to their healthcare provider about our testing and what we provide to the healthcare provider so that they can go to their doctor and and ask for our testing 
we want to support not just the patient in getting the right answer, but we want to support the healthcare provider in knowing what to do when we do find an answer. It, it doesn't do anyone any good if the patient can't actually get better. And we as a company, our mission to advance healthcare can't be met if the patient can't actually get better. So we after we send the report to the healthcare provider, our job isn't over. We spend a tremendous amount of time doing consultations with the doctors so that they can understand what the report means and how this is different than healthy. And then if they need further support, we have lots of connections with other specialists and pharmacists that can help guide them on what next steps are going to be most helpful in this particular case. Now, you have a database of some 37,000 bacteria, viruses, fungi, parasites, and I would assume that's the DNA on all of those. Yes, that is a database containing the whole genomes, so the entire genetic makeup of all of these microorganisms. And that database grows multiple times a year as new things are being discovered by, um, by the scientific community. And so you've got those all digitized, analyzed and digitized out there in a very, very large database. Then I come to you, say, what do I give to you to be able to get the data to match it up against your database? It depends on the symptoms that, that each person's exhibiting. So if someone has a chronic cough, we want to have a sputum sample from them. If they're having a chronic urinary tract issue, we want a urine sample. So we have nine different collection kits that are standard, and we help the doctor and the patient figure out what samples are going to be the best samples for us to start with. We then take those samples, pull all of the DNA out of it, and do deep DNA sequencing, which creates a genetic fingerprint of everything in that sample. That creates a very large, very complex data file. It can be up to a terabyte of data for just one patient sample. That data then goes through our analytical process where we quality control the data and match it up to what we have in our database to identify what was in the sample, as well as how much of it was in the sample. So let's pick that apart a little. I give you a sample of urine, and you're looking for everything in it. What is everything in it? In some cases, we find nothing. We, it's not very often because urine is typically not sterile. In some cases, we find two or three microbes, and in some cases, we find 50 or 60 microorganisms. Every sample is completely different. So what we're looking for are microorganisms that are not normally associated with the urinary tract system, and we're looking for things that are growing out of control. So Anything above the threshold that should be there. Right. So if we have a sample that has... Klebsiella bacteria at 93%, that is an infection. That is clear signs of an infection. And in our experience, when that's treated, the symptoms from the, the urinary tract pain and urgency will, will dissipate. Now, what do you mean by deep DNA sequencing? 
We, by deep, we mean we're sequencing a very large amount of DNA. So we sequence anywhere from 10 million DNA fragments to 40 million DNA fragments, depending on what kind of a sample we're starting with. Um, and what we want to do is we want to get a representation of enough DNA from every microorganism in the sample so that we can create a confident identity. So we have to identify 30 unique DNA fragments for each microorganism for us to say, yes, that organism is in the sample. So we have very strict requirements as to what has to be present for us to, to, make a, to create an identity. You hand over your sample, urine, blood, whatever it is that's sputum, whatever is particular to your condition, and that gets very deeply organized. Then that is run against your very large database. How different is that from just going in and getting a normal set of tests at the doctor? Traditionally, we look for things one at a time in diagnostic testing. So you go in with a sore throat and the doctor says, whoa, that sounds like strep throat. So they swab your throat, put it in a little diagnostic cartridge and waits to see if it turns positive or negative. And if it's positive, that's great. They have, you know, they have some information they can act on. But if it's negative, well, then what? Well, maybe let's look for staff. Well, that's negative. Well, maybe let's look for, you know, some other, you know, microbe. And it's this, this iterative process where, you know, you can go through dozens and dozens of tests for different microorganisms. And if they're all negative, you have no information to be able to take any action on. And so the standard of care is a differential diagnosis that you alluded to earlier, where after a series of questions and maybe a couple of cursory tests, the healthcare provider... Um, makes a differential diagnosis of strep throat and, pre and prescribes you with a broad-spectrum antibiotic. And in many cases, each one of us has had this happen to us, and in many cases, we, it, it's good enough, and it knocks the bacteria down well enough so that our immune systems can take over and clear the infection and we can heal. In a lot of patients, though, that is not the case, and these patients end up with chronic, lifelong conditions. Some of our patients have been sick for literally decades. Now, is this covered by insurance? We have done a little bit of work in insurance billing, and we were getting some coverage on an out-of-network basis with some of the larger private pay insurance companies. Right now, we're in the process of getting coverage through Medicare. So it's a long process to go through. And because our technology is so different and so new, it, it takes time for us to help the, the, the payers understand the value of what we're doing. Fascinating, Crystal. Thank you so much. I hope you come back. Keep us updated. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Dr. Crystal Eisenhower is the CEO of Aperiomics. More information is available at aperiomics.com. That's A-P-E-R-I-O-M-I-C-S, aperiomics.com. For Tech Nation, I'm Moira Gunn.
Tech Nation and its regular segment, Biotech Nation, are produced at the studios of KQED-FM in San Francisco. Executive producer is Matt Gardner. The director of technical production is Monte Carlos. And audio engineers include Howard Gelman, Seal Muller, and Larry Upton. Our theme music was composed by Ann Nochtrieb Zessiger and Robert Powell, with title creation provided by NameLab Incorporated of San Francisco. Program information and internet audio is available on the web at technation.com. TechNation and Biotechnation are productions of TechNation Media. I'm Paul Lancourt.